Hello, welcome to Orion Talks. My name is Suat Çubukçu. I'm a senior fellow, fellow at Orion Policy Institute, and we have a distinguished guest today, David Perus. David is an associate professor of sociology at University of Colorado. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. Um, David has a 15 years of research on gangs and gang violence, and he has published several number of books and articles on gang. And his recent book, which is titled On Gangs, is published by Temple University Press, and uh, he co-authored with Scott Decker and James Stansley. And also congratulations on your new book, David. Thank you. Um, so your book provides an overview of gangs and how gangs operate and grow. And also you provide some uh, policy recommendations as well on prevention and enforcement of gangs and gang violence. So uh, I wanna start our conversation with the first question of what motivated you to write this fascinating book, and which is titled On Gangs, and what makes your book special? Yeah, I think we get the award for the shortest title of a, of a book uh, <laughs> with two words in it. Um, but, you know, th there's a little bit of history there that, that has to be recognized, and something that we did try to recognize at the beginning of the book, which tells you a little bit about the motivation and, and some of the things that we think are, are unique about it. So for one, um, you know, there's a bit of a history with, you know, it's like a continuance of Confronting Gangs. And Confronting Gangs was published originally in 1998. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I was still in high school at the time uh, when Dave Curry and Scott Decker wrote that book. Uh, and they wrote a second edition in 2003. And then by the time I went to Arizona State University and went to graduate school, Scott and I had started collaborating on a number of articles. I had the chance to meet Dave Curry a few times in St. Louis, uh, and we elected on writing that third edition of Confronting Gangs. And uh, Dave Curry uh, passed away in 2015, and we wanted to write essentially a fourth edition. Um, and so we went to Oxford University Press who published the third edition, and they said they weren't interested in a fourth one. So we thought, you know, we gotta rethink this a bit. And we did, and we reached out to James Densley um, and he joined the authorship team. We reached out to Temple University Press and they were really interested in you know, a new book. So there, there's some connections to confronting gangs, but it's different. I mean, James brings a different viewpoint. He's you know, an Oxford sociologist. He worked with Diego Gambetta, Federico Varese, Heather Hamill. And so he just thinks about issues a little bit differently than how Scott does and how I do. And so uh, there was that history to it. And you know, we also have to recognize the literature changed so much from 2014 mm -hmm. when Confronting Gangs was published uh, now to 2022. And so the way we viewed it was there was a need for like these authoritative, comprehensive books. So like the, the way that, you know, the, the literature looks is, you know, there's some books that are more on the critical criminology, sociology side. There are some books that only focus on the United States or viewing gangs more as organized crime groups or more policy practice oriented books. Uh, and we wanted something that was a little bit different, a little bit more balanced, fair-minded, integrative mm -hmm. is, is how we thought about it. And we also really wanted to be able to weave in firsthand accounts I mean, we've done a lot of field work, a lot of interviews over the years, and we wanted those interviews and those quotations to, 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 
to be present across the 14 chapters of the book. So the way that we organized it was we have these core issues, the emerging issues, and then the responses is the way that we thought this section uh, should work. And, you know, part of this motivation is when it comes to the study of gangs, there's no journals that are devoted to this topic. Um, there aren't these divisions of societies or organizations. And yet this literature has exploded. And so when we did this systematic review back in 2015, uh, one of the things that we saw was 1993 was like this inflection point when the literature redirected. It was like a positive linear trend. And then all of a sudden in 93, it just redirected. And the cumulative body of the literature was doubling in the matter of a five-year period. It's like, if you're a student in the early nineties and you go to study gangs, you know, there's you know, 500 works. When you get done with graduate school, it's now at a thousand works. And so for science to be able to advance projects like this are necessary, especially in the absence of institutions that are supporting them. And so the way we see it is like the study of gangs is in some way looks like the gangs themselves. They tend to be pretty decentralized, uh, informal, functional, as opposed to um, uh, and, and, and unpredictable. And so that's the way we approach this book and to try to bring some order to some of the chaos that was out there. Uh, that's excellent. Thank you. So when you look at the pattern and the trend uh, in gang and gang studies, so how do you evaluate the extensiveness of the gang problem in the United States? Yeah, so it, it sort of depends on mm -hmm. who you ask here, because um, different people mm -hmm. have uh, different vantage points from which they view the problem. But it could be understood in a couple of different ways. Uh, and I think from the outset and answering your question, I got to be clear here and to say, the population parameters have been defined almost exclusively by the criminal justice system. Now I get it in some ways that's fair. They're the ones who are dealing firsthand you know, with gangs. Um, but on the other hand, other people have viewpoints too. So we gotta keep that in mind uh, when we say how big is uh, the gang problem. So we could talk about it in terms of, you know, the number of people who are involved in gangs. So there's the National Youth Gang Survey, which existed from 1996 to 2012. Uh, and their most recent estimates from 2012 said it's about 850,000 people. You have the National Gang Intelligence Center report out of the U.S. Department of Justice. They say it's, you know, over a million. There's also our correction systems, right? So our prison systems say it's about 15% of the 1.5 million people in prisons are gang affiliates. In our jails, probably about 13% were some of the estimates. In our juvenile systems, those estimates uh, vary pretty widely. And our, our juvenile justices, uh, our juvenile corrections, I should say, it has changed remarkably over the years in the number of youth who are behind bars. But just to be clear, you know, the police data suggests that about a half of 1% of the US population is involved in gangs. So that's the people approach. There's also the groups approach, you know, and the National Youth Gang Survey says it's about 30,000 gangs. Now, we, we should be a little bit skeptical of those numbers, of course, because they're gonna be imprecise. The way that cliques are nested within groups, um, we just can't be too certain on the number of, of gangs, but the 30,000 number is, is what people go with. And then you have the activities in terms of the homicides. Uh, is, is like the most reliable, valid statistic that's out there. Uh, and that's about 13% of homicides in the United States are related to gangs. And that's a, that's a big number. I mean, you think of 
you know, yep. mass shootings, you think, or mass casualty events, uh, domestic terrorism, those numbers are right around 1% of the total homicides. So, and, and when you get into the urban areas, those numbers are much bigger. The only thing I would like to add to this, though, when you ask this question of how extensive is the problem, you know, there's the people, there's the groups, there's the homicide, but there's other considerations that should be factored into this too. Things like fear or intimidation of, in communities, kids being willing to go play at the park or parents taking their kids to the park, feeling safe after dark in neighborhoods. Uh, you also have to consider uh, the resources that are steered away from other social problems, particularly as local government, state government, the federal government, they've had to mount responses. The only other thing I'd add is you got to also take into consideration the benefits of gangs too, which often go unacknowledged. Uh, and I'm not trying to say that there's one thing that's more important than the other. It's just to say that in some ways, gangs bring order in places where people can't or won't. They offer structure to children in ways where in places where it doesn't exist. So offering some sort of like semblance of institutions and order in communities too. And those are important things to consider, which I think people are taking into greater consideration today than they had, say, 20 years ago. Okay, excellent. Thank you. So you provided kind of really objective facts about the, the numbers and the prevalence of the problem. So when you look at the trend, do you see it's, it is more concerning? I mean, we are having more gang issues than before. And also when you look at the nature and the structure of the gangs and how they operated, do you see a kind of also changes in their, in their culture and the operations, especially in the last decade? Okay, in the last decade, yeah, because they're sort of like, you know, before times, because mm -hmm. we've been studying gangs for over 100 years. I mean, Henry yeah. Sheldon, 1898 is when the first academic use of the word, or the use of the word gang was used academically. Uh, you know, there is Puffer who wrote about the boy and his gang in 1912. And then, you know, uh, Bogardus in 1926 in Los Angeles. Uh, and then, of course, Frederick Thrasher in 1927. And that's really when there was like the start of gang research, mm -hmm. um, you know, social disorganization, the interstices of the city where these kids, where these groups emerge and so on. So I, I guess the point is to say, though, is that gangs have really ebbed and flowed over the last century. And um, as uh, and researcher interest has also ebbed and flowed over the last century, too. And that's a critical point that I'll that I'll return to in a second. But I think what we don't, we don't want to start really a decade ago. We probably want to start five decades ago, really in the 1970s, the early 1970s. And that's where we really saw this emerging split between the gangs in the, in the pre-war period and then everything after that, really beginning in the deindustrialization era uh, in the United States. And so, you know, the groups existed even in the 50s and 60s. You had Malcolm Klein doing his work in Los Angeles, Walter Miller in Boston, Jim Short in Chicago, Lou Yablonski in New York. And there was violence. There was some structured, you know, organized activities associated with them. Uh, but it was really beginning in the 1970s, but especially in the late 80s, early 90s, when gangs proliferated across the United States. So many of those people did surveys like of experts, typically law enforcement, but also social workers. Uh, in 1960, it was about 50 cities were reported as having a gang problem. By 1970s, it, by 1970, it was about 100. 
By 1980, it was like 170. And then by 1990, we're talking almost 800 cities. And by the turn of the century, we're not talking anymore about counts and numbers. We have to shift to prevalence scores because 90% of cities with 100,000 or more people at the turn of the century reported having gang activity. Uh, by two thirds of the cities that had a population between, I think it was 40 or 100,000 right around there between those numbers had gang activity in there. So that's one thing to consider. The other thing is, you know, we don't have the National Youth Gang Survey anymore. So if you ask me what happened in the last 10 years, I say, I don't know, because the survey was defunded in 2012. The only national numbers that could give you trends to rely upon is from the National Crime Victimization Survey. And they have the school crime supplement. And it's kids reporting, is there gang activity at your school? And those numbers continue to drop. They've almost dropped in half from about 20% of kids to I think it's like 12% of kids uh, are saying that there's gang activity in their schools. I believe that's through 2019. I can't recall if I saw the 2020 numbers. So that's a downward trend. But we've also experienced in the last two years, uh, COVID, the pandemic, social unrest. Um, and we're now seeing sort of this split in the use of the, the G word in popular media. Um, mm -hmm. And to be sure, we just don't really know. Now, to go to your question about how these groups are structured and organized, um, you know, gangs have always been pretty informal and diffuse. They, they, they just really haven't had a lot of like organization structure and like centralized structures. You know, there's some really good work in Chicago by Roberto Aspom who points to the fracturing or like the balkanization of gangs in Chicago, uh, where you have seen sort of the splintering, especially among the black gangs from sort of these big gang structures more towards, you know, corner groups and sets and cliques um, that are uh, more dynamic and fluid. And you could think about a more in network terms than in terms of like bounded ways of thinking about the groups. So that's important to consider. But again, that's Chicago. Chicago's always been an outlier when it comes to the organizational structure of gangs. So the groups are involving, but if you ask me to go back 50 years and com compare them to 2010 or 2010 to today, I'd say, look, the soul of the street gang remains unchanged. Just the world around them that's changing is would be my conclusion about it. Okay, thank you. And so you talk about the change and also you mentioned about the COVID and the pandemic. And in recent years, we are talking about increasing number of homicides, in, mm -hmm. especially in large metropolitan cities of the United States. So do you think to what extent the gang crimes and gang violence contribute to this increase um, in violence? Yeah, and um, th there was some recent research on this. George Tita and Jeff Branningham and some others in Los Angeles found um, you know, the gang crimes didn't increase proportionately or disproportionately the gang crimes. So they all went up simultaneously and gangs essentially, uh, the proportion of crimes that were gang related was equal, even though the aggregate numbers of crimes increased. Mm -hmm. but, but we got to step back here for a second because um, when we're asking about gang crimes, especially about gang related homicides and whether those changed over time, you know, we don't know, um, especially at the national level, simply because we don't have data surveillance systems in place to gather such information. And in 2009, the FBI and the National Gang Intelligence Center, they put out this report 
And one of the top line takeaways were that gang members were responsible for 80% of crime. Uh, ABC News, all these other organizations sort of ran with that statistic. And, and let me be clear, they said 80% of crime. I mean, come on, that, that doesn't make any sense if you're talking about one half of 1% of the population. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, even 80% of violent crime would be pretty absurd, um, you know, when, when you take out homicides and you're focused on aggravated assaults, robberies, sexual assaults. But of course, buried in that report was, you know, this, this, this notion that uh, it was 80% in some locations, yet it sort of was a, it was a fixture in popular media. Now, there's just not a lot of research on how much crime or what proportion of crime, violent or otherwise, is gang-related or gang-motivated. And that distinction is an important one because you could have gang-related crime that has nothing to do with the gang itself. So you could think of instances of, say, a domestic dispute where you have a perpetrator, uh, a male gang member, who assaults his wife, and that gets logged as something that's gang-related. Um, because it involved a participant as either a perpetrator or a victim. Gang motivated, in contrast, it has to do to further the interests of the gang. And that's even a pretty broad definition, too. But usually it has to do with instrumental activity. So you could think of you know, drug dealing, uh, protecting territory. There could even be symbolic aspects of it, of dealing with disrespectful, you know, crossing out of graffiti, uh, walking into rival territory, incidentally, um, or you know, yelling uh, gang slogans or throwing up gang signs, uh, that could be to further the interests of the group. And there's about half as many gang-motivated homicides as there are gang-related homicides, even though for the last 40 years, people have shown the characteristics, the situational characteristics of those events tend to be pretty similar. Uh, so it's important to distinguish between the two. Um, and on the national level, there has been some research on how it's changed over time. It's just that stopped in 2012 because this comes down to a data problem. You know, with the, mm -hmm. with the elimination of the National Youth Gang Survey, uh, we, we just can't tell how it's shifted year over year. Now, the good news is the National Institute of Justice, they put out a call for funding in 2009, got it started in 2020, and there's supposed to be, RAND Corporation is supposed to be delivering you know, new data on, um, you know, the, the basically the, the new equivalent of the National Youth Gang Survey, but it's just unclear when it's going to be reported. And the landscape has changed. I mean, it's just, it's mm -hmm. different. The way police departments respond to gangs and the way the public thinks about gangs has evolved over time. The other systems are the, NAC, the supplemental homicide report, but those numbers are just too untrustworthy. They just lack good sound measurement properties. And just to give you a sense of this, uh, in Denver, for example, the Supplemental Homicide Report says from 2000 to 2019, there were a, just about 1,000 homicides in Denver here. Uh, and 2.3% of them were either gangland killings or juvenile gang killings. Now, the National Youth Gang Survey in a three-year period said there were 26 gang-related homicides at the turn of the century in Denver. And the Denver Police Department says there were 26 homicides in, or 16 homicides just in 2020 alone. Um, so it's just to say that, uh, and, and when I talk to street outreach workers, I mean, they, they have attended so many gang-related homicides over the course of the last couple of years. It's just, it defies belief and you just can't put too much stock in the numbers. 
So yeah, I see so much discrepancy in the numbers and subjectivity in defining what is gang-related, what is gang-motivated. Yeah, so it's, it seems pretty much messy. Hopefully, it's going to resolve um, in the short future. Uh, and also another reason, I mean, another trend is kind of far-right extremism and violence mm -hmm. in the United States. And uh, there are several right-wing groups, groups like white supremacists and neo-Nazis and the anti-government groups. Do you see any kind of interaction between these ideological groups and these gangs, like street gangs or prison gangs? I mean, in terms of a direct interaction, like coordinated activities, it's not so much. So when we did a collaboration, Scott Decker and I did a collaboration with uh, the group um, at a start from the University of Maryland, the study of terrorism and responses to terrorism, they have this database called PIRUS, Profiles of Individual Radicalization in the United States. It's an excellent database, open source data, um, and they go through and they comb through people's histories and it's they have some really fascinating information. Uh, we found about 6% of people who were in those databases had a prior history of gang involvement. Uh, so in terms of direct connections, you just don't see it too much. And the examples that you see of street gangs interacting uh, with domestic extremist groups for the purpose of carrying out terrorism is rare. It's just like a couple of events get recycled over and over, or you see instances where groups like MS-13, when you know they get classified by federal government, I mean, not formally classified, terrorist language and extremist language gets used to describe some of their international activities. So there's that instance of it. But I think the, the, the more relevant question as it relates to the far right uh, and other domestic extremist groups in the United States uh, has to do with the lens with which we view them. And Shannon Reed and Matt Vlasic, you know, they wrote this book called Alt-Right Gangs, and it makes a really strong case for viewing groups on the far right, whether it's the neo-Nazis, the Proud Boys, or the Three Percenters, uh, through this gang lens. And part of the benefit here, and they make a pretty strong case for it, but part of the reason for this is, you know, there's all this theory and there's this method that's been made available and the benefits from this hundred plus years of research and to make these more explicit comparisons. Now, I do think that there's a lot of similarities, but there's also differences too. Uh, for one, we're talking about developmental differences. When we focus on street gangs, you're generally the typical age of a street gang member is in their upper teens and their early 20s. So we're talking about youthful people here. Um, some of them who aren't able to drive yet, who can't vote yet or buy alcohol yet. Um, and a lot of those developmental differences are responsible for bringing about showing other differences too, like the proportion who are married, who are working in full-time jobs, uh, who have gone to college and so on. Uh, and then the religious focus too. I mean, it just, there's a lot of differences um, between gangs and extremist groups. And so if you think of the Venn diagram, there is certainly overlap in their comparisons, uh, but mm -hmm. they're, they're, those circles are also pretty different too. There was actually a recent study that just came out uh, like two or three days ago by Scott Atron, uh, which did a comparison in Spanish prisons of jihadists and the Latino prison gangs there. And what he found, or the research team found was, there was these strong psychosocial differences between them. And the, the jihadist groups had a much greater emphasis on like self-sacrifice on behalf of the group, 
but also self-sacrifice on behalf, behalf of the group's values and the personal values. And you don't see that as much among prison or among gangs than you do um, uh, among some of the domestic extremist groups. If there is, where I would expect the greatest overlap to be is within the prison gangs, especially with what people call like the security threat groups, uh, where they would have like the stronger commitment to their values, you know, the org- that, that they're more along the lines of organized crime groups than they are of your typical street gang. So they sort of um, toe the line between some of the more extremist side and then what we find with your typical gang. Okay, thank you. So it seems to be kind of, uh, we see much more peer effect and group dynamics among gangs. Um, and also this can be some overlap between these extremist groups, especially the organizations. Um, so you, you talk about the prevalence of the problem and the kind of the trend, uh, and also briefly mention about the, the government focus and the resources. So what can be done about gangs? So what, what are the best practices that actually um, the government can actually work on it to prevent uh, the gang crime, gang violence in the United States? Yeah, and, and that's, um, so in this book, uh, more so than in 2014, um, we have a bit more of a glass half full view of the problem, uh, or at least uh, of responding to gangs. And so Klein and, uh, uh, or Malcolm Klein and Cheryl Maxson, uh, their book from 2006, they did this, this really great review of policies and practices and programs to respond to gangs. And ultimately, the main takeaway was everything was promising because it just hadn't been rigorously evaluated. In the last 15 years though, we've seen some more rigorous evaluations. And I think that, um, and and that's given us more of a promising take on it. And so uh, some things have improved. So for example, on the prevention side, you know, what can prevent people from uh, getting involved in gangs? Well, you know, there's now been good rigorous research on the efficacy of the gang resistance education and training program led by Finn Estenson and his colleagues, which is shown using randomized assignment of people to getting the grid, or I'm sorry, the great curriculum versus not, that they were less likely to join a gang in one year uh, and over a four-year period, less likely than the control group. Those are pretty promising findings. On the intervention side, there's clinical interventions now, for example. Uh, The group from Denise Godfordson, Terry Thornberry, and Brooke Curley Uh, They've done evaluations, rigorous evaluations of functional family therapy gangs, which is a clinical intervention, which shows that it can reduce recidivism. That was based on youth in Philadelphia. And that's actually an intervention that we're replicating here in Denver in Aurora uh, over the next couple of years. On the intervention side, there's also street mediation or violence interruption. And that's been central to public health approaches Uh, to respond to gang violence. We know gang violence is heavily retaliatory. There are norms of reciprocity that when one group strikes, another group is expected to strike back. If you can get mediators out there uh, who can stop those conflicts from spiraling out of control, uh, then it could reduce further tit-for-tat gang violence. And there's some good evidence from Jeff Branningham and his group from the Gang Reduction Youth Development out of the mayor's office in Los Angeles. Now on the suppression side, that tends to be the most supported, uh, partly because that's where the resources are. So when it comes to the police, uh, police police-led interventions, you tend to find support for them. Uh, For example, 
with focused deterrence or group violence intervention with David Kennedy and his group uh, and Anthony Braga. Civil gang injunctions, you know, filing uh, civil lawsuits against gangs and you enjoin them and prevent them from associating in certain geographic locations. John McDonald and his group has found some pretty promising evidence for violence reduction. And gang takedowns, you know, targeting an entire gang set. Uh, Aaron Chalfin and his group has, has found some pretty promising evidence. You know, of course, there's opportunity costs. If you're going to focus on police-led interventions, there's going to be consequences there too. Uh, some of those have to do with, you know, the legitimacy of law enforcement and criminal justice. Some of it has to do with kicking the can down the road and ultimately formalizing gang structures in our prisons. Where are we lacking though? And, uh, you know, we're lacking in some places. Uh, prisons, we don't know what works in prisons. Uh, there just hasn't been a lot of research uh, about gang interventions in prison, whether it's prevention, intervention, or just violence reduction. We simply don't know, partly because there hasn't been the research. Legislation. Gang legislation rolled out in 1998 in California with their Street Terrorism Enforcement and Prevention Act. Malcolm Klein, in his book from 1995, he has this really great, great quote where he says like something like, my only wish is that competent research uh, would have been done in conjunction with like the rollout of STEP, the Street Terrorism Enforcement and Prevention Act. And he was spot on right. You know, another 40, 44 jurisdictions uh, went and adopted gang legislation, anti-gang legislation, almost always on the suppression side. Does it work? We don't know, because it's never been tested. Uh, so we don't know if these policies and practices brought about with legislation, for one, if they've even been put into effect, or if they work. And so we devoted in this book an entire chapter to legislation, just because we think it's very important. So in the end, when it comes to best practices, you know, we're, we're interested in the group processes of a gang, because the group processes are what provoke intergroup and intragroup dynamics, they breed cohesion, and they breed consequences. Uh, we're interested in balanced approaches that balance prevention intervention in suppression. We worry that suppression heavy approaches can be consequential. And ultimately, even though it shows short run benefits, it could have long run consequences. Uh, we absolutely need evaluation. All of these interventions should be paired with evaluation. It doesn't have to be randomized control trials. It could be staggered rollouts. Anything that would allow us to leverage like exogenous variation to be able to test for differences. And ultimately, it comes down to people, uh, places, or things is, is where you target uh, and try to reduce the consequences of gang activity. Uh, and the final thing, and this is based especially on Scott Decker's observations over the last 40 years, is even the best intention programs can fail, which is some of the things that they observed in St. Louis. Uh, they had this great quote, him and Dave Curry, sometimes it's harder to change the behavior of organizations that are tasked with responding to gangs than to change the behavior of the gang members and the gangs themselves, um, just because of how these groups institutionalize, how they fight for money, um, and how these groups can con conflict with each other and their interests. Okay. So excellent. Thank you so much. I think the key term is balance, being balanced, especially with the deterrence and rehabilitation and our reaction to the violence. Um, thank you so much. And it's, I'm glad to see that there are so much kind of increasing number of evidence-based policies, but also I see so much kind of room for improvement in the 
future as well. Uh, David, thank you so much for the great conversation and for your time and for your insights and great um, kind of coverage of your book and the gang problems in the United States. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me very much. It's been a pleasure.